Ashton. Welcome to season six, episode five of Siren Sundays with me, your host, Lashanti the Siren. We are going to be focused on speaking with researchers, scientists, and practitioners of all things environmental science and all things conservation. You are now tuning into our conservation conversation. And before I introduce our guests, I did share a little earlier today on my Lashanti the Siren Facebook page about the Bahamians, birds, and botany, citizen scientists, and leadership I think it's more of like a, I don't want to call it internship, but check it out on my page, sign up to apply. Even if you're not interested in birds, you're interested in just general environmental science, Dr. Antolino Davis and Tanoya Thompson are amazing behaviors that have come up with this program. And I think you should all check it out. So now let's dive into the actual show. We have Trevor Johnson, who has come recommended by so many people. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Oh, great. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to... Have been recommended by three people totally humbled <laughs> <laughs> i hope i can fill those expectations but i look forward to our conversation today okay great um as you have mentioned my name is trevor johnson i am 26 years old 27 so, sorry uh my birthday was just sorry. thursday <laughs> yes <laughs> my birthday is just thursday so i have to get used to saying that i'm 27 now um, I'm from Holmes Rock, Grand Bahama. Um, I am, my first degree is actually in education. Um, I was a science teacher at the grade eight Malark High School for about three years. Um, while working there, you know, I would have done some work with local disaster consultative committees. And then I did my master's degree in beautiful Barbados at the University of the West Indies. Yes, in environmental management and climate change. And now I find myself at North Dakota State University doing my PhD in disaster management. Um, professionally, like I said, I would have taught, um, I would have worked with local disaster consultative committees, and I also would have worked with the then Ministry of Disaster Preparedness and Management and Reconstruction. I worked closely with both former ministers, Bakisha Parker Edgecombe and Iram Lewis, and I served as an advisor of some sort while working in the ministry, and I currently serve as a product and service services consultant with the Inter-American Development Bank Group, for disaster risk management and climate change adaptation. Oh, so what is that? What does that mean that you do? Well, with the IDB, what we what I do with the IDB is um, I participate in a range of activities related to disaster risk management. So the IDB, for those persons who don't know, is a multilateral organization. You know that gets funds from various developed countries and different organizations, and through that. And through that, um, <laughs> I saw one of the comments coming on the screen. Yeah, Lindy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and through that, um, they fund various country initiatives and projects. So the bank, they have various technical cooperations where they seek to advance the policy, legislative agenda of the country in various areas from climate change, um, debris management, waste management, renewable energy, and of course, disaster risk management. So we're actively working on fortifying the country's legislative policy approach to disaster risk management, and also knowledge sharing. So I do a range of activities. So what would you say got you interested in this? Is it, um, I think it's just from pretty for sure. So how did you, you know, as a Grand Bahamian, uh, the one of a Grand Bahamians, you know, yes. uh, what, what made Grand. you, right, get into that? Um, I would say my experience from, from the age of nine, I've experienced the impact of almost 10 tropical systems in my lifetime, Hurricane Francis, Jane, you name it, Wilma, I've lived it, I've experienced it. You know, and I, I, I just, I just told a story to someone the other day that I can actually remember sitting in my living room at four years old, and I think it was Hurricane Floyd in 1999. I can remember experiencing the impacts of Hurricane Floyd, and it left, a, it left an indelible impression in Hurricane Francis and Jane uh, in the fifth grade at Holmes, our primary school. My school was completely devastated not in school for almost five to six months, um, sorry, five weeks and longer. Um, so those experiences really fuel my passion for disaster management. I mean, at that point in my life, I didn't know that there was an area that I can study, something that I could have done, but I knew that, you know, I wanted to be a part of the solution with regards to disasters. Um, I think, and then too, while pursuing my bachelor's degree, um, I developed a love for the environment. You know, I was assigned, I was studying science education, but I did one or two courses like ecology, where I really got into the conversation and notion of climate change and disasters. And it was, it was relatively interesting considering my background and being a grand Bahamian. 
I noticed I put the Grand Grand Bahama, but I know. So <laughs> I can't. Yeah. So, so that was that was that, and then after Hurricane Dorian, you know, it was in 2019. I just finished up my master's degree, um, and I'd recently established or formed the Bahamas Climate Change Campaign, and I realized that there was so much. While working with the ministry, I realized that there was so much knowledge gaps that we had in this space. You know, people always ask, why PhD? Like, why did you decide to do a PhD? Because I knew that there was so much we did not know. And I wanted to be a part of, you know, thoroughly exploring, researching, and really surveying the landscape of disaster management. Because I knew in order for us to have a focused approach in our country, we needed to have persons who are educated and knowledgeable in this space. So that... Yes. That's the keyword. Yeah. Yes. I agree. So actually, and I'm curious, can you tell us or tell me, tell everyone about this Bahamas climate change campaign? Because I know we have your logo up. So what is what was what is it about? What does it do? So like I, I, I lived in Barbados um for a year and I was completely blown away by how the country embraced, you know, climate change, embraced, you know, the blue and green economy. And my lecturer, um, Muhammad Nagbi, he he had a he had a he had an organization called the Blue Green Initiative, and he did a lot of outreach in the community. And I was like, I would love to see something like this in the Bahamas. And after, as soon as I submitted my thesis, I um, I went on. I started the Bahamas Climate Change Campaign, which is an organization that sought to raise awareness, you know, to lay to the lay Bahamian about the impacts of climate change. So. Through that organization, I would have spoken to numerous um, platforms about climate change, its impacts, and what it means to the Bahamas, from the Rotary Clubs to Rotaract Clubs to primary schools. I spoke. Um, I just spoke to a group of fifth graders about two, three months ago. Yeah, so I'm still. I'm not as engaged as I would like to be because I'm doing a PhD. But yeah. I still, whenever the space, when whenever the opportunity comes, I I like to do outreach. I like to, you know. Let Bahamians know that, you know, climate change is real. It's here and it's happening now. I think one beautiful thing about your background that a lot of researchers just don't have is the ability to convey information to the layperson. Like you having that science education background and like I always call myself a science communicator because I feel like I just discovered this whole, you know, area. And, and it's true. Like a lot of people just don't retain this information because they don't understand it. So it's really good that you have that background and you're able to convey that information to people. So I'm sure your campaign is, is so successful. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and so I know we have a quick question um, from a viewer. What does climate change mean for the Bahamas? Like, how would you how would you best answer that? Um, climate change is a very, very deep and vexing problem, especially for any small island developing state. Uh, when we talk about climate change, we're not talking about shifts in weather patterns. So, for example, it rains heavy today, and then tomorrow it rains heavy again, and then rains heavy again the other day. You know, we can't be so quick to jump and say that's climate change. But climate change is, you know, when we see those long-term shifts in weather patterns. And I'd give you an example of something that's concerning to me as a climate change specialist and also a disaster management researcher. The fact that between 2015 to 2019, we've experienced impacts of some four to five category five hurricanes. Hurricanes Matthew, Dorian, Irma, Maria, and Joaquin. Mm -hmm. That is concerning. I would have done research dating as far back as the Great Bahamas Hurricanes. I think of the, as 1900. It was a, a Great Bahamas Hurricane during that period. And when we look from then to now, we've never seen a period where, we, where we've experienced so many Category 5 hurricanes. And it's it's really it's really mind-blowing when we look at it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. And what climate change is telling us is that we may not necessarily see, or there's no data to support at this moment, that we will see more strong, meaning we would see increase in frequency of stronger hurricanes. But what the data is telling us is that we are most definitely going to see stronger hurricanes. So Hurricane Dorian, I do not believe was an aberration or something that was unique to what the Bahamas can see in the future. But I think Hurricane Dorian matches our future outlook, our reality. Yeah. We can expect to see storms of that nature. And when we think of, you know, a lot of times the climate change, you only tend to think about stronger hurricanes, but there's so many other impacts from sea level rise. And the, considering the fact that the Bahamas is a relatively low-lying country, ocean acidification rising, temperatures in a, an economy driven by tourism 
you know, Baham Bahamians come to the Bahamas for sun, sun, and sea, not hell, sun, and sea. <laughs> we have to be careful. We have to be very careful. And these temperatures, I was in Nassau. Let me tell you, I was in Nassau for, for about four weeks. And in it, <laughs> it was on the temperature, it was it was unbelievable. The mm -hmm. temperature of how 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 hot it was was unbelievable. And these are some of the impacts of climate change, the things that we don't think about. We don't think about how that's going to impact our tourism product. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I would have read the Caribbean Tourism Organization report, I think it was about two to three years ago, and tourists are now complaining about the heat in the Caribbean. Get out. They are complaining about how hot it's becoming. And while, yes, they may be leaving, you know, um, colder climates to come to the Bahamas, they still want to be comfortable and not necessarily feel like they're going to have a heat stroke. But these are the realities of climate change. So when we think about the impacts of climate change, we're talking about impacts to almost every socioeconomic sector, from tourism to agriculture to education. You know, I did my thesis on the impacts of hurricanes and climate change on the education sector. That's a sector that we don't think about in terms of loss, loss in teaching days. Luckily, mm -hmm. the research tells us that children are resilient, but that does not mean that this is not an area of concern. So we can see, we can expect to see continued impacts in so many socioeconomic sectors. And it sounds like a sad story or something unbelievable, but it is the reality. You know, I tell people, look at countries like Kiribati, Vanuatu, Tuvalu. They're already experiencing the impacts of rising sea levels. And the question is, is. <laughs> they are, those are, they are, those are small island developing states, just like the Bahamas yeah, yeah. in the Pacific and Indian Ocean. Oh, okay, okay. Um, they are, for example, Kiribati, they have already purchased land, I think in Fiji. Mm -hmm. they're, they're purchasing land in another country. And the question is, how much longer or when will that similar story be written along our treacherous shoals? Yeah. And, and, and I think if climate change continues to change in the manner and rate in which it is changing, that could most definitely be our reality. And I think it's high time that we fully embrace this notion of climate change, which I am very happy to see this current administration is doing. Um, I just hope that we see considerable action and not necessarily continue talk, you know, because yeah. we, we've had a lot of talk in the international space. I, I, I tell people the, UNF, the UNFCCC has been talking from 1992, no action yet to me and my humblest yeah. opinion. Yeah, because and so, even what you pointed out earlier, climate change for a lot of people, it just seems like one of these stories that we just hear about, right? Like we just hear about it, but it's real and it's here. And I always tell people long gone are the days where we could talk about, oh, let's adapt for coming climate change. Nah, it's here. It's we here, need to yeah. adapt to what climate change is and what we are going to expect because it's too late to stop it. It's here. But people are still like, I think a lot of that narrative is just catching up and it's the old narrative of, oh, we can stop climate change. Change, right? yeah. No, it's changed. It's yeah. It's the reality of our warming world now. It's not long, it's no longer, you know, what if, what if it's it's here now. Yeah. And I feel what I've noticed a lot about this space is we do a lot of talking. We talk a lot, you know, we talk a lot, we, we send a lot of powerful messages, but we're not seeing action. I we do, We're not seeing sufficient action in terms of um, scaling up losses and damages and for small island developing states. Um, significant reduction in the emission of greenhouse gases mm -hmm. and especially with the with this carbon market base you know it's so much the, 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 uh, don't get me in the carbon market listen, listen, I, I i tell people the carbon market is the greatest one of the greatest downfalls of this climate change fight you know i can remember doing a policy class um and i think it was in 2006 or 2005 with the Marrakech Accords, when they introduced this market-based incentive for for um, climate change, at that point, we lost the battle against climate change. And because countries are now finding ways to not necessarily reduce emission because they're participating in this market-based economy. And that's why small island developing states, we have to be very careful in terms of how we take hold and what we try to do with this carbon market so that it doesn't prove almost hypocritical Listen. in us voicing for climate action. Listen to me, offsets, carbon offset, any offsetting, I am a firm believer that it don't work. Um, but we have to, uh, we have 
Hi. Uh, what are actionable, actual achievable solutions to better equip the country for the onslaught of climate change? We've seen the IDB make recommendations about settlement relocation, like you were just pointing out, and other ideas to better navigate the road ahead due to increased storm severity. From your background in disaster management and environmental studies, what realistic measures can we take to slow and or prepare for the impact of climate change? That is a beautiful question. question. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful question. I think that, yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful shift from climate change into disaster management now. Because mm -hmm. in, in this battle against climate change, we have two main weapons. And the first weapon is mitigation, meaning we need to try to reduce the amount of pollution we put into the environment. The second one is that we need to adapt. Adapting is the things that we can do to essentially live with the changing climate. And one of the greatest tools, especially for the Bahamas, which I don't think is stressed enough, one of the greatest tools against climate change is disaster management. Our primary hazard in the Bahamas is hurricanes. Yes. You know, therefore, you know, hurricanes, when we talk about disaster management, what is disaster management? Before I get too much in the sexiness of it, let me... <laughs> Let, let, you know, let me make sure that we have a grounding in terms of what disaster management is. I love it. That's that education background. <laughs> so disaster management, in its simple, simplest sense, what we study is how human beings create and interact with hazards or vulnerabilities. We also study how they cope with the consequences of hazard events, meaning after an event, how do they cope? What do they do to recover? So when we recognize that human beings create vulnerability, we understand that there is no such thing as a natural disaster. And, you know, when I say that, people, oh, what is this? What is this new trend? You know, all academics always coming up with something <laughs> different. <laughs> no, I... Oh, that's true. <laughs> I did a presentation. I was a guest lecturer to a university in Belize. And when I said that, like, yeah. they attacked me. It was like, what is this? Yeah. What is this new thing? But when we say that there's no such thing as a natural disaster, what we're saying is humans, us governments, mm -hmm. institutions, we put people, places, and property in vulnerable communities. And I it's also just want to take a moment to shout out Varys Griffin, who was on the show earlier, and, and people were also shocked when she noted that the, th there's no such thing as a natural, as a natural. But yes, continue, continue. The institutions. Awesome. Yeah, we put people, places, property, and other uh, and livelihoods in very risk-prone and vulnerable areas. We have several communities in this country that are very, very, very vulnerable. From yeah. Low Sound in Andrus to West End in Grand Bahama, these communities see repeating losses and damages. Yeah. How much longer are we going to continue to blame the hurricane without recognizing that the reason why we're seeing these losses and damages is because we have put these valuables, we have put our lives, our livelihoods in these very risk-prone areas. So when we recognize that, we realize that we are creating the disaster. Mm -hmm. So now, when we say humans create disaster, the beauty in that is, is that there's something that we can do about it. Because we are creating it, this is how we know that we can do something about it. This is where mm -hmm. the beauty of disaster management comes in. We can prepare for events. Disaster management are four, I would say we have four main functional areas. Yeah. Preparedness, mitigation, response, and recovery. When we talk about preparedness, does pine would count? Very. So when we talk about uh, preparedness, you know, we're talking about those actions that we take to increase our state of readiness. Mm -hmm. We talk about mitigation. We're talking about those sustained, sustained actions we can take to reduce or eliminate risk, like those structural measures, like seawalls and 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 flood walls. So those non-structural measures, like actually. Settlement, re settlement, settlement relocation, as if like what the viewer would have commented, mm -hmm. settlement relocation is a non-structural mitigative measure. Then, of course, we have response because we know that we're going to have to respond to disaster. We're going to have to take some immediate actions before, during or after an event. And of course, we also need to recover that process by which we reshape, we rebuild and we restore the impacts that would have been lost. So that in its entirety is what disaster management is. And I also understand disaster management to have three, three identities. One, disaster management is an emerging profession, meaning we have persons within our communities and jurisdictions who are charged with facilitating the frameworks of preparing for, mitigating against, responding to, and recovering from. 
I also recognize that disaster management is a distributed function. The job of disaster management is distributed across many entities and agency. We have several functions in disaster management from damage, um, damage assessment, debris management, um, sheltering, search and rescue, you name them, several of them. No one stakeholder, no one agency, no one department is capable of executing those functions. Right. Therefore, we must recognize that disaster management has a distributed function. So when something, when we have a poor response or poor recovery to an event, stop blaming NEMA. NEMA is only the coordinating agency. Yeah. NEMA is only as good as the doers of disaster managers, those persons in the distributed function as well. And lastly, I also recognize that disaster management is an emerging academic discipline. There is a plethora of research about there, out there about disasters, what goes well, what goes wrong. And we need to begin to synthesize this information to form practice and policy. You know, the practice of simply just putting some random um, policies and plans in place, it's not working. It's failing us. So we need to begin to look at what research is telling us. And notice I was very cautious in how I framed disaster management. I said that it is an emerging discipline and an emerging profession because disaster management is very, very young. As a matter of fact, most countries around the world, especially least developed and developing nations, did not develop codified disaster management programs until after the 1990s when we saw the International Decade for Disastrous Production. Yeah. So that means we're, we're working in a space with less than 30 years of development. So we can expect to see some growing pains and challenges, you know, and to drive this message home to people, what I usually tell them is, I want you to think back to medieval medicine, you know, when they believe that we could drain the blood out of someone to cure them from diseases. That's, that's, exactly, where the, that's exactly where disaster management is today. We're still trying to learn a lot of things. And that is true. We're still learning. Mm -hmm. We're still learning. And, and that's, that's just the truth of the profession the truth of the academic discipline and the state of the field. It's very young. And the only reason why we're taking so much um, focus on disaster management now is because we realize that disasters are really hurting people. They're killing people, they're hurting people, and they're setting back the development of several countries, especially developing nations. So I know we do have an interesting perspective from a viewer. Shout out to Stefan, how are you doing? Um, he says, I can understand the perspective, but I believe in bringing people into the conversation around disaster management. It will require us to acknowledge that we, while we perpetuate the disasters, it may be a big pill to swallow coming in. There's no such thing as a natural disasters. I feel you though. Um, and, and I think- I, that's yeah, yeah, go, go, I, I agree. No, yeah. I agree. I, I think that's a very hard thing for most people to understand because what we're saying is we have natural hazards. We have hurricanes, we have floods, we have, we have tornadoes, we have all of these things, you know? Those are natural hazards, they're hazards. The issue is we, we need to recognize, or we need to understand, is that disasters are socially constructed. Yeah. You know, we, like I say, if, if, if we were to build as we should, you know, mm -hmm. when, we look at, when we look at the after action reports from Hurricane Dorian or the other damage assessments done by various organizations, various groups, mm -hmm. they mention the same thing. A lot of impacts we would have experienced because of sometimes weak building codes, some infrastructures not being built up to par, persons not evacuating, communities able to swim. Exactly, yeah. persons not evacuating communities. You know, no one, no one. Yeah, Hurricane Dorian was a beast. It was a monster. Category five hurricane. I'm not saying that you know that if a Category five hurricane comes to Bahamas, we should expect no losses and damages. That's you know that's you know that's that's not practical to understand. But what we're saying is we can see a great reduction in our losses and damages that mm -hmm. may not necessarily need to escalate to a disaster. And yeah. to drive this message home, I want to give people the scenario of two countries. In 2010, a 7.1 earthquake, I believe, struck Port-au-Prince, Haiti, killed a quarter of a million people. Two years ago, a same, the earthquake of a same magnitude impacted a, a town in California, one person was injured. The same hazard. It's the same hazard. Yeah. Same speed of onset, same duration, same forewarning, but completely different outcomes. 
Yeah. And it's simply because our vulnerabilities and a lot of our vulnerabilities are associated with choices that our institutions, governments, and even us as individuals and households, we have made. Yeah. So, and I almost, I almost want to go back a bit to the question that we got earlier from Theodore Elliott. So some, what are the actual achievable solutions that, that we as a country can achieve? And I know the first thing that I think about um, that I preached for long before even Dorian is Bahamians, over 90% of our population can't swim. And just the ability to be able to tread water and swim, that I feel like is an achievable solution to reduce loss in, in storms, right? And I don't know if you, are there other things that you can maybe from your you know, point of view that you think is an achievable solution that the country should look forward in doing instead of you know, passing these policies or signing on to all of these different international agreements. Like what as a country can we do to begin really reducing um, the magnitude of disasters? Because like you said, it's impossible to completely have no disaster. So how can we manage this disaster in a way that it, it reduces the loss of life and the loss of like the way of life? Because schools shut down, like you said, for five weeks because of a, a hazard. How? How can we talk to me? <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful question. Um, I think there are so many things that we can do that's simple. One, for example, and it goes back to we need, and as much as this may sound not necessarily at the fundamental, you know, to the, at the grassroots level for the average man, what the average man can do. Mm. But as a country, we need to shift our focus in how we view disasters and disaster management. You know, what we need to see, in the, we need to see legislation in this country that really takes a hold a comprehensive disaster management. Not only preparing to respond, but also how do we, ex, like how do we fund mitigation? You know, we know our vulnerabilities in this country. We know which communities are low lying. We know what options we need. So when we talk about acting on climate change now and adapting, is how do we finance these mitigative measures? How do we plan for recovery? Recovery, Bahamians are suffering in the post-disaster context, post-Hurricane Dorian. We are languishing, largely because we have not done a lot of the footwork before what should have been done. Yeah. The issues that we're seeing in Abaco with housing recovery should not be the case because these issues have been repeated from the 2004 earthquakes in India. The same issues, like we know that after disaster, we're going to see a loss of inf in infrastructure. We're going to see gaps in the housing market. So why when, we re why, when we, why when we create policies, we're only offering assistance to individuals and households? You know, why are we leaving out renters? Yes, I understand we don't have an abundance of money, but we need to be cautious of the decisions that we make on day one and be ready to deal with the consequences later on. So that, and all of these things can be addressed through simply housing, housing recovery, planning for recovery. The issues that we're seeing with debris management, these things could have been resolved with a debris management plan. These things exist. This is not something that's fake or something fantastical that I'm making up. These are things that we need to begin to do. We need to be. We need to begin to build capacity in our country in this space. We need mm -hmm. to actually see persons who are educated in disaster management working in disaster management institutions. When we build schools, it's not rocket science, you know. When we build schools, we put teachers. When we build hospitals, we put nurses and doctors. Mm -hmm. When we establish disaster management institutions, why are we putting persons from so many different disciplines in, to work in that space. And that is not an issue just in the Bahamas, but it's around the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, even just when you find around the world, in the Bahamas, wherever, you find that the ministers or the, the directors or the people responsible for certain agencies have no formal training in these in these agencies and in this, in this discipline. Um, but you got my comment section popping right now. And Stefan uh, echoes with, Right. I agree 100 percent from my line of work in citizen engagement. It feels like you're saying your existence in trying to meet your needs is the cause of disasters. You shouldn't have built your home there. In reality, people are just trying to survive. We know you're not literally saying that because yeah, we're not. Yeah. But it's how it can be taken from people just wrapping their mind yeah, around it. The approach around how we communicate to the wider public because we need everyone to act will be key. And, and I agree. I think we're not. Yeah. We're not communicating that properly um, just as a, from the educated people to the people who are in rural areas. Um, you know, Lindy says, um, we need more of the responsibility to be shifted from the average, average man, man to beautiful institutions, right? And those beautiful. are protecting their population. populations. So, right. So, like Stefan says, it's really important that, and I almost before I even get into that, I see 
D'Angelo says, Carlos Palacios is always recommending things to mitigate the damage from hurricanes, such as proper zoning and coastal protection. And that's it right there. Um, you know, Darico joked, oh, Pinewood. We know Pinewood is going to flood every time it rains, every time a storm happens. So why has nothing been done yet to it's... prevent that, mitigate that, stop the loss of, of valuables from these people who live there? And, and again, I agree with Stefan. I think a lot of times the narrative can come across as, it's your fault for choosing to live in Pinewood. Yeah. Some people can only afford that. So what as a country can we do to ensure that these people are protected? It's a little late to try and plant mangroves because that's not going to kick in for a while. But it's exactly. like. Exactly. Do get started on this succeed as a Pinewood. But <laughs> I think Lindy said it best. You know, we need to stop blaming individuals and households. We need to stop blaming the average man a lot of the things that they experience and we need to recognize that a lot of decisions that we make a lot of decisions that governments make impact individuals and households stop telling yeah. people to have a kid be informed and and have canned good tuna and corned beef for disaster i mean that's not a we could talk about that later on when we talk and when, when we get to that point but it's so many things that we need to do at the institutional level at the government level before we, we can begin to tell individuals and households what to do because like Stefan rightly said we live in a country we don't live in a utopian society everyone cannot afford to live in an area that is not risk prone mm -hmm. you know but when we when we decide to make these decisions then it's up to us it's up to policymakers and decision makers to determine how are we going to move forward mm -hmm. and that's why in the united states after and after and, and other jurisdictions around the world after you know the impacts of severe disasters and severe um, events, they engage in land buyout, whereas they move communities and put them elsewhere. Now, we live in a country we're driven by politics and, you know, no one's interested in going down that rabbit hole. But I remember Dr. Del Thomas, she, she, she you know, she, she spoke about this conversation one day she was on the media and said, it may seem as something that's so far-fetched and something that, you know, why, why are we doing that? But it's like, when are we going to do it? Because if we don't do it, we're going to continue to see the mistakes that we're making. And I think, again, it's just so important for us to uh, just really hold. And I, and again, I always try to, I steer away from anything that is very politically charged just for reasons yes. of, I believe I'm a, I'm a, a servant of the people. I, Agreed. whoever's in power, I want to see the greatest good done for the greatest Agreed. amount of people, especially people in need. And I think it really just comes down to being able, like, and, and Lindy joked with the Pinewood Residents Unite, we need to hold our government accountable. We need to ensure that that the things are being done that they said that they will do and that we need done for these communities. And I mean, I don't know if any big relocation could happen. I personally think that more people need to move off of New Providence. But again, that's a whole nother, that could be a whole nother episode um, of things to talk about. So, but you said it great. And we got a lot of bingos and, and yeps in the, from what you said. So that was very potent. Um, Definitely. A lot of uh, I, I, population density in New Providence is a serious problem. You know, too much. I tell I, I told someone the other day in a conversation, I said, I don't think this country has experienced because someone said Dorian is the worst of the worst. I said, in terms of strength, yes, Dorian is the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. But I tell someone, I told someone, if if you see, God forbid, and I pray this never happens, yeah. a category three or a category four hurricane hits on Pax New Providence directly, then we will really see yeah. what a disaster or catastrophe would play out in the context of an independent bombers. Hurricane Dorian is a joke. Hurricane, I, I tell you, yeah. Hurricane Dorian was a joke, would be a joke. Mm -hmm. Because sweet Nassau is literally the hub, the, yeah. the, the bread and butter of our country. And, and we have not done enough to make sure that hub is fortified in the face of stronger hurricanes, especially with preparing for it. Yeah. And I think uh, one thing that I always, um, I think I criticize, and I try not to criticize our people too much, but I think oftentimes we can get so blinded by short-term incentive. Um, mm -hmm. We'd rather do the things that will reap the most benefits in a short period of time rather than really looking at a long-term vision of, of what needs to be done and what will protect us longer or prevent things in the event of rather than, oh, well, if we just hurry up, invest in this, then we can get money back. And, and yes, more people will have money, but 
then when disaster hits, what does that money get you? That money can't buy you anything if the food store is devastated and there's nothing to get. So agreed. Yeah, that's a so many. I feel like I'm shooting up so many potential episodes. I must need to have you come back one day. <laughs> 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 other things, um, and I don't want to just miss out on another comment from Nandi, a loyal viewer. More awareness and education is needed. We won't ever see significant buy-in or any action until this science and or data is related in a manner that is easily understood and resonates with the average man. The wider community has very little knowledge of or understanding about climate change. True, we have to shift in our delivery. We communities until then. We will continue to sound scientific jargon falling on deaf ears. And I totally, totally yeah. agree. No, I, I agree. I agree that we have to go. We have, we really have to go in the community. And that was one of the reasons why I formed the Bahamas Climate Change Campaign. You know, mm-hmm. and when when presenting, you have to be so careful in crafting information about climate change to the average person. Is because you have to make sure that you let them know how it's being impacted. They are going to be impacted by it. How people are already being impacted by it, mm-hmm. and what's like what's happening around the world to deal with this big problem, like. And you have to really attach to people's emotions. Um, and I, like, I spoke to a, a group of fifth graders, like I told you, just two to three, two to three months ago, mm-hmm. and I was blown by the fact that they were concerned after this conversation about climate change. They were literally concerned okay. about about um, about climate change and how it's going to impact us. Um, okay. And I think, I think, like I said, I think we need to do far more. In order for us to see any agency, in order for us to see significant change, the fundamental mm-hmm. step is education and awareness. For sure. In order for people to change their behavior, they must thoroughly understand, you know, what the issue is. I think we would we, we can benefit with a with a really massive climate change awareness program in this country. And not putting on ZNS for two minutes, what is climate change? What is that? What is this? Not not that. Like meaningfully going into the communities and spreading the gospel and and climate Mm -hmm. change is not no good news but spreading information about climate change what it is how you're going to be impacted and i think governments are a bit hesitant about that because then a lot of expectations come on to them i was just man you take the words like who is this going to be because if the government says anything, there always going to be an expectation of y'all telling us about this problem. So what's y'all solution versus like how you started your campaign? It'll purely come from this. I'm a Bahamian. This is my campaign. Yes. I'm trying to educate and aware and, and things like that is so important. And I hope to see you continue to do that forever because we need that and we need the children. And I almost I always hate to hear the kids are scared and concerned, right? Because I remember being a young child, being scared and concerned. And that's what really, you know, things like that is what obviously got us into this type of fear field. But it needs to, to come from a place where you said giving them agency and almost empowering them to know that you are the change makers of the future. We're giving you this information because from now you need to start thinking about these things. And when you decide to build your house, if you make that money to do that, build it and do things in a way that are going to, one, prevent disaster, but also benefit the country long term. So I think, oh, so much, so much. (laughs) I agree. I agree. You know, I I totally agree. I think it's time that we we really get out. And this is where the role of nonprofits and non-government organizations come in because we do much of this groundwork. And like I say, this is not the case just in the Bahamas. This is the case around the world. I I, I spoke to a side event at COP, the last COP, at COP26, and I met some persons from the UK, and they were doing a lot of work with nonprofit organizations in Africa trying to get the message out. And because the governments are not doing it, you know, in those parts of the world, the governments are not doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's up to us, not the Bahamas Climate Change Campaign and Yasiri and Sunday's program to get the information out to the people. Yeah. I yeah, That's what it is. And I think, um, and to get just a bit, I don't know, this is philosophical, but I almost feel like, you know, one of my purposes, right, like in, in just me being a human on this planet, a global citizen, is to do that. Like, I enjoy finding people like yourself who are passionate about what they do, who are knowledgeable about what they do and getting that information out there. And I'm hoping a viewer is hearing you today who maybe shares this episode or talks about something you said that will spark a conversation and spark that change that we need because no one can do it alone. 
Um, and even when I start to think about throughout this conversation, I know I feel like we bouncing around what the, the topic of the Amazon is supposed to be, but just as simple as the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals that have been established by the UN from years ago. There's so much funding out there for people who are willing to do things related to these SDGs. And some of it is closely related to climate change. If, if we as a, a nonprofit community really was to tap into that, I think we can be so strong. I think the nonprofit and um, community, whether it be conservation or like, you know, Stefan has the citizen engagement, volunteering and stuff. If we could just tap into more funding that doesn't have to come from government to really help empower our people. I, I feel like we'd go so far. Yeah, I agree. It's hard, man. It's hard. We, we try to live Insane. lives. <laughs> And saying the action that we want, and you know, people people always ask me, who is like, who is one person I admire in this space, or and someone I'm who? Ask you that. Yeah. See, look, look, that's the spirit moving on a Sunday, you know. So you know, people always ask, who do you admire? And mm. one person who I admire a lot is not even a climate change specialist or disaster management specialist. Okay. It's the Prime Minister of Barbados, the Honorable okay. Mia Motley, and the Auntie yeah, exactly. And the reason why I admire her is not because I listen to her speeches at the UN conference or, you know, those are powerful. Don't, I won't, you know, try to make them seem little. They're powerful. But I lived in Barbados when at the heels of when she had won her first general election. And to see the things that she would have done in Barbados, you know, she, she isn't just talk. Uh, Barbados is literally, we talk about climate change and talk about like food security and Rihanna. <laughs> you know, you got that right. When you talk about issues like when you talk about issues like that, they had a program, for example, Barbados from called Roof Roof to Reef, meaning how do we get water from how do we get that the water that you know from inland to get on shore to mm-hmm. like to reduce the flooding issues, the suit issues that they were seeing. Like these are they were actually acting on climate change. And the reason how I knew this is because one of my lecturers, the late um he would have recently passed, God rest his soul, Dr. Hugh Seeley. He was one of the advisors of, you know, of Mia Motley. And he always spoke of her. And she was not a... And that's why I tell you, like, when I when I tell people my love for her, it isn't just from what I see on TV. <laughs> you know, she is a woman. She seriously wants to know, know okay, tell me what to do. I don't need to know any more about the talk. You know, tell me what to do. And no matter where she goes, no matter where she presents, you would think that she has a background in climate change or she is some climate change scientist, but yeah. that's truly her passion bleeding through. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever she goes to speak, she wants to make sure that she can speak comfortable and she's knowledgeable of this space. You know, and our, our lecturer always told us about that. And that was from then, that was someone I admired. You know, she she wants to make this actionable. She wants to do things to really plead the cause of small island developing states. But at the same time, she's trying her best to really ensure that her country, Barbados, is is much better in a much better Mm -hmm. state. And Barbados has several initiatives and programs. They have an entire ministry responsibility for the blue blue economy. And it is not a, it's not just a conversation or talk. They're actually doing work. They're doing things to really ensure um, that that Barbados can be a bit more resilient in the face of, of climate change. Yeah. And I do admire, um, of course, big up to our prime minister, who's really done a great job amplifying, you know, the climate change issues and even youth and climate and things like that um, for really connecting himself so strongly with her. Because like you said, she is a great example of what should be done. And I love how Stefan said it. She's the prime minister. And I think it is one of the things, unfortunately, for the Bahamas is that makes it a little bit harder for us. And I think it's so important to acknowledge this. When people look at the Caribbean and they look at the Bahamas, we're like a little Caribbean. Like our yes. archipelagic nature is great, it's beautiful, but it makes governance, it makes policy things so hard for us. If we was just New Providence, and I think that's what causes us to be so Nassau centric, because it's just so easy to manage one mass of land. Like we have such a spread, and I'm really hoping that we continue to build capacity, you know, in our country on all the islands. And it's starting to happen and it's getting there. I mean, look at you, you you're from Grand Bahama. And I love when I hear about Bahamians from different islands doing amazing things. We have Marjan working in the same climate space and she's on South Eleuthera. And, and it's exciting because I think that our generation is going to be the one that starts. Um, Cause I always like to say the, the ocean doesn't, um, separate us is what connects our country and connects our islands. Yes. I think yes. our generation is really starting to bring in that connection. And I'm so excited for the future of this country because I feel like we are, yes, we have the, the youth are youths <laughs> behind us, but really we, I see a change coming. And I, yeah, I no. 
so optimistic and so hopeful. Um, I agree. I, I am so happy with the with the I guess the the placement of climate change currently for our government. Like mm-hmm. it, it's something that we needed from a very, 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 very long time ago. Yeah. You know, I'm so happy to see that we're talking about it. We're we're making policies. We're trying to strengthen and and you know and deal with the issues yeah. in in this space and advocate on behalf of small island developing states. Yeah. And I'm happy. I'm so grateful that we're doing that because it the, the time we should have been doing it ten years ago. It's happening now, yeah. and and you know better late than never. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and we're and we're looking forward to you know how we're going to continue to grow and mature in our advocacy. For climate change yeah yeah i'm definitely i'm looking forward to it and and i, I do just want to throw out because i mentioned this on um my little pre-show instagram thing disasterology you call yourself a disasterologist and i had never heard that term until yeah. i did a little background research on you and so just you know you're doing a phd in this stuff and i always like to inspire any viewers um whether they're able to pursue a formal degree or not what is disasterology and how can someone get involved with this work that you're doing that people in this field are doing right now? Um, well, disasterology, it's not really like a, you know, it's not, <laughs> if you go to the dictionary, you won't find this term. You know, I, uh, on my resume, I do not have, I'm a disasterologist. Um, but what it was actually coined by some, by, by uh, another person, by the, another person, <laughs> Lindy, yes. an, another um disaster management researcher by the name of Samantha Montano. Um, mm-hmm. She actually created a book and it's actually right here. Ah, it's, oh. it's a crazy thing. And I recommend <laughs> reading this. It's Disasterology Dispatched from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. It's a beautiful book that talks about disasters, disaster management and climate change. And she considers herself a disasterologist. And, it, and you know, it was sexy to me. So now I'm a disasterologist. So studying disasterology. But it's, it's essentially just someone disaster disasterologist is someone who studies about climate change climate change i'm not climate change sorry disaster management and disasters um i encourage people who 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 are interested in this space um one it's on the it's on the book so it's a word (laughs) that said i i agree i agree it's definitely it's definitely a word um if you're interested in working working in this space you know I would tell you that I recommend persons that you do a first degree um, at a bachelor's level, maybe whatever your interest is, and then you can probably do a master's degree in disaster management. One, because it's very it's easier to find a master's degree or a, a, in, in this space than any other type of degree. Um, bachelor's degree, not so much, only in the United States, but master's degree for sure, they're located across Europe across the United States, they're way more pervasive. You can find them much easier. More funded too. Yes, exactly. And it's much easier to get funding for master's degree because it's shorter. Most master's degree are a year to two years. um, And they're way more pervasive across the landscape. Doctoral degree is, it's very hard to find a doctoral degree in this space. And, but bachelor degree, the issue is it's four years. It's not, it's outside the United States is not that common um but one of my research interests actually is the fact that we have no disaster management degree program in this region full no we do not have a full bachelor's master's or doctoral degree in the caribbean region i'm actually yeah. publishing a paper i'm actually publishing a paper about that this is the only when you die I, I most definitely will this is the only region in the world without a degree in disaster management of any sort bachelor's master's or doctoral and you know i i feel as if the bahamas is well poised to take that opportunity of that mantle up in especially at the university of the bahamas and Mm -hmm. in terms of i think they would have recently established a climate change adaptation um research center you know when we talk about when we talk about what's happening um in in other countries and other nations around the world those institutions are leading the charges of producing specialists. You know, they're producing the environmental managers. They're producing the geologists, the geographers. You know, so it's time for us to take a similar role with regards to disaster mm-hmm. management. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, unfortunately, like for example, if anybody wants to connect with me personally, I recommend you. You can email me, but 
I really email in. Like, I, I have enough emailing from school and work, but I recommend if you want to reach me, you want to get to me very quickly, you can you can search up on Instagram or on, on Facebook, and I'll engage in a conversation with anyone. I like to talk, as you can see from this. And I and I think with this place too, it's it's more so individualistic in terms of guidance, because it isn't a very, very like matured field, you know. You know, it's going to be different because you may have someone who is interested in doing a bachelor's degree in disaster management, and they're going to get completely different advice from someone who's coming to me with a first degree already and want to do a master's. And, and someone wanting to do a doctoral degree is even going to get completely different advice in terms of what to do. Persons already working in this space, I will recommend, um, if you're looking for certification, like the International Association of Emergency Managers, they have a certified a CEM certificate and also an associate um Oh, uh, uh, an associate um, emergency manager certificate and the likes. You need to have a bachelor's for those? Uh, yeah, you do. Okay. You and do. I always recommend people, because I always like to try to encourage both routes, right? Like, you don't always have to go and get a bachelor's. Because I just understand that some people are not school people. I survived school. I did well in school, but I don't like school. Um, but I will recommend that people um, go to UB. UB has a really good quality education, and right now it's free. So go get, go get your four-year degree from UB. It may take you a little longer, whether you work or, or you know, part-time, full-time. And then you'll be so surprised how even if you just do biochemistry, geography, any basic degree, well, not, let me call it basic, any, you know, foundational yeah, degree, degree, you'll be so yeah. surprised how you can, you know, can navigate you. into different fields, especially something like disaster management. And that's advice. That's advice I usually like to give people. Like you said, you said it beautifully. You know, that first area, um, that first get, get a first fundamental degree mm -hmm. before you want to specialize in another area. Because what you're going to realize with something like disaster management, even environmental management, you have people like the great Lindy Bo on this conversation. They'll tell you that you know. On the show soon. Don't mind. You know, <laughs> they'll tell you that. When you're doing when you're doing things like this, like disaster management, I never in a million years imagined that my education degree is helping me today. Mm -hmm. You know, when I did my master's degree at UE, I didn't I couldn't believe that, you know, that my background in education allows me to play a significant role in this space through climate change awareness and and and, and outreach. You know, these are things that we don't think about, and that's why I always recommend a first degree. Yeah. But what I would love to see for our region is for a development of a master's degree at first in this space so that we can really begin to meet the capacity, the gaps, the needs that we're seeing. Because every time we talk about it, the, the, every issue that we see, you read you read a, a after action report or a damage and loss assessment, whether it's in Grenada, whether it's Jamaica, Bahamas, Barbados, no, Trinidad and Tobago, whether it's Turks and Caicos, one of the first, one of the first things they recommend it's capacity building. There's not enough people to mm -hmm. do the work, and it's like it's like it's like why why are we doing these documents if we're not going to act on them? Yeah. And it's it's a gap that I think we can fill. And I think Jamaica started to do it. Jamaica started to do a master's in disaster management because I that's initially what I wanted to apply for. Yeah. But when I applied for the program, the program was closed, and exactly the like program was closed. Or I think they may have only had maybe one or offering maybe one year. I don't understand the issues behind it, but they closed and the lady in Jamaica recommended my program in Barbados. She said it's not the same thing, but it's closely related. And I was like, yeah, I don't it mind. Yeah, it's it's sexy enough. And like, you know, I like it. Yeah. But I think with also another beautiful message that comes out of just like your story is the fact that you have an education background. We have so many teachers, and I know so many of them um, personally, who are very uh, fatigued in this career, right? And it's never too late. And I always tell people, it's never too late to switch careers. And having a bachelor's in anything, you'd be surprised how just doing a master's in something else. Yeah, maybe you'll have to take a couple extra courses, but you can career switch. And I yeah. think it's, it's so great to have people like yourself who, again, know how to communicate information and and that's so important as we've identified in the comments and through this conversation helping people understand this who are not in the field is so important because those are the ones who are part of the the change like we need the average man to understand some of the core concepts yeah. so that they can help us and be empowered and then help us you know 
almost kind of lobby, right? I don't, I don't like I don't want to use the word lobbying. Lobby, like, yeah, sounds political, but, yeah. But right, like almost just kind of help to to enact that change, man. Like if enough people saying the same thing, then they gotta listen. They, yeah, they have to. You have to listen to us. And you know, when I when, when I usually go out in the community, you know, I do outreach. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I learned very quickly is that people, once they receive the information, especially when delivered, the automatic next question they ask is even what, why are we not doing anything? Like, what is, what is the issue? What's stopping? And it's like, you really, we really want to go down that comment. You know, like it's so many things, so many issues. It's so many issues that, you know, that's really, you know, impacting us. And I tell people, mm-hmm. when your member of parliament come in for your vote, to borrow your vote, instead of asking for harm in Turkey and this and that, this is your time to start asking about what are we going to do about climate change? I told someone when I went to Barbados, I had a conversation with my bus driver about climate change because he knew about it. That that just goes to show you how pervasive it is, like how it's so much grounded into the fabric of what it is. And I was just blown by that. And I was like, the Baha- I really want my country to be to be here. Like I want us to get to that point. But the average man, anybody in any any profession knows about it once yeah. and talk about it once engage about it mm-hmm. i believe we'll get there like i said i definitely see I, so. I see and i've been meeting so many people like my show is only two years old and i've met so many young behaviors who have yet to get on this show like again lindy's a perfect example but anyway yeah. i'll call out again but i'm the great, so the great lindy boat the great lindy boat <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so, like, and even just that, I'm so excited, so optimistic, so inspired by the young Bahamians that have taken up that challenge of a PhD. Like, shout out to y'all, right? Because I've watched people go through PhDs, and I know it's not easy. It's a very lonely road, and a lot of times you just, you almost feel like you'll never reap what you sowed. But yep. I promise y'all, you are appreciated. Your efforts you. are appreciated. Your, the time you spend is appreciated. And I'm so excited to just see the future of our country when we finally have more Bahamians coming home with PhDs. Because, you know, the people you have in PhDs in these sorts of areas are always some foreigner. And, and I don't want to use foreigner in a derogatory way, right? right. But it's other Bahamians. And we yeah. need more educated Bahamians who can take take the torch, man, and really just carry our people into the future. And so... That has been a great episode. I mean, yeah, in an hour. I know we was worried about like, oh, are we going to take long? But no, this has been so great. And I just want to ask you, you know, as our, and as we're closing now, if you can give some final thoughts for viewers, some words of inspiration, or even maybe if you want to share like a lesson you've learned like in your time just going through this field. Like what's some final thoughts you want to give our viewers to take home today? My final words and final thoughts, you know, Sim, follow your heart, trust your intuition and do what you love. I I can remember when I went and I did my master's degree in climate change, a lot of persons questioned me. A lot of persons questioned, they were like, because at that point, you know, I, I was doing pretty well in education. You're like, why are you going to take a career shift now? Or, you know, why do you want to do climate change? What is it? Is it even real? Like, bear in mind, this is in 2018. People was like, why are you doing this? Is this even real? Even when I decided to do my PhD in disaster management, like another... Another field, people was like, why do you want to study this? Why do you want to do this? But the opportunities are so endless. It, mm-hmm. it, the scholarships are out there. You just have to, and that's another thing. If anyone is interested in, in applying for a master's degree and, or a doctoral degree in this space and they're lost about scholarships and where to go, I have no problem helping you. I can remember what it is being mm-hmm. lost. They didn't know where to go to find any type of scholarship, any type of funding, any type of assistance. And I am just, I, I would love to share that information with anyone. In this space, we have to we have to start to work with one another way more than we are. Networking and really ensuring that we're growing the field. This notion mm-hmm. of, you know, black crab syndrome and I want no one to do this space. I won't be the only. Listen, mm-hmm. if, it, if you're doing it for the right reasons, those things matter not to you at all. They don't, you know, yeah. and, and I would love, you know, I would love to see other Bahamians working in this space, you know, especially in disaster management. And I think that is my life goal at this point. I really want to see us establish uh, a master's degree at the University of the Bahamas. That is my goal. If I could if I could do that, listen, I could walk barefoot, sell peanut and carry juice. Yes. 
after that. You know, I I I feel like I would have completed my life's mission because I just oh. think that it's so important at this point mm-hmm. that we get to that. But simply, I say all that to say is follow your heart, do what you love, do what you love, you know, and trust your intuition. Because when I did that four years ago, I had no idea that I would have been where I am today. And not paying a dime for not paying a dime oh, any. God. Yeah, like for, for schooling or tuition or living, truly just follow, do what you love, follow your heart, and you'll be straight. Trust, of course, you need to trust God too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sure. I'll operate on some crazy faith, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that's it. Yeah, and I don't think that uh, your, your goal or dream is impossible because I know we have at the University of the Bahamas, the, and someone maybe can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure there's like a climate. Yeah. Unit or something in the university because I remember Dr. Adele Thomas was yeah. the director. So yeah. I hope that it still exists. I don't know what happened to that, but oh, this has been such a great episode. And I definitely plan on bringing you back sometime soon in the near future. No Thank you so much for your time. This, oh, I am so inspired. And again, like I was telling you before the show started, a lot of these episodes are really for me. Like, yes, yeah. benefit, but I so love in, in meeting and in speaking with young Bahamians who are passionate about what they do, who are informed and can convey that information so well. So thank you for your time. Uh, no, thank best you. luck with your PhD. I know. You pray for me. Pray. Yeah. <laughs> I, I prayers up. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. And thank you to thank all you. the viewers for once again riding the way with us on another episode of Siren Sundays. I hope to see you all next week. Bye. Nice to meet you.